This is Entheogen, three human beings discussing generating the divine within while still being human beings. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. And today we're talking about the uh, good doctor, Albert Hoffman. So, uh, Brad, this was your idea, I think, to discuss the good doctor. What, uh, what did you want to focus on here? Well, yeah, we talked about it before. Um, you know, I, I think of the three of us, Kevin's the only one of us who's read the book, uh, My Problem Child. But, you know, he's just an interesting guy. You know, he invented LSD and his who he is as a person is, I think, really different than a lot of the other people that you find in in the, the psychedelicist community. Um, just in, he's, he's very straight-laced. He's very academic. And from what I've read of his, he's also incredibly eloquent and his English is amazing. He's just really entertaining to read. Um, so yeah, it's just something that we talked about, you know, get, getting, getting around to talking about Dr. Hoff. Um, but it was no more than that. So a lot of people know, you know, of course, that he was the, um, the original, uh, you know, chemist who synthesized LSD. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people know this, this story that, uh, I guess he sort of, you know, returned to the compound, uh, after, uh, after originally synthesizing it, um, because he kind of had a feeling about it and, uh, a peculiar presentiment, uh, to resynthesize it. And he did. And then he sort of accidentally, I guess, ingested it. Right. Did you just say peculiar presentiment? Yeah, I didn't. I did not coin that. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> that was fantastic. Yeah, I'll just I'll just take credit for it. <laughs> He's a psychedelicist. <laughs> no, that yeah, that is true. And also, it's. Um, I thought it was curious when I was reading the book that it's like LSD is LSD twenty five because he was uh, synthesizing tons of lysergic acid compounds and uh, it just happened to be the twenty fifth one he uh, he synthesized and it's one that he shelved for, I think for five years. And right. then, uh, yeah, right. and, then, and then he came back to it. Yeah, from the first, so he shelled it five years from what I was reading. Um, a lot of what I got on the content was a, a cool article that Michael Horowitz um, had done an interview with um, The Hoff back in 1976 that was published in High Times Magazine. And in that, they were mentioning how he had an accidentally ingested it, which this is. Uh, Great example of the way Hoffman speaks. Uh, he says, I prepared a fresh quantity of LSD in the spring of 1943. In the course of this work, an you accident. <laughs> you imagine him like, you know, in, in like uh, wearing, wearing like, uh, you know, some old 1950s like kitchen outfit, like you know, some, some baking mittens on, like while he was doing that. Or, yeah. But the, the, the phrase he uses for having ingested it was an accidental observation. <laughs> Like, I prepared a fresh quantity of LSD in the spring of 43. In the course of this work, an accidental observation led me to carry out a planned self-experiment with this compound. That's great. That's the famous bicycle day. I guess it was in 1938 that he first synthesized it and then came back five years later in 43 and had the accidental observation. He was saying it was something he probably went through the skin of of his fingers. So he felt it and, like, he went home that day kind of not feeling quote unquote well. Um, and then it was a few days later on April 19th is bicycle day. So it's, it was three days after that, that observation that he, he, you know, what he referred to as his first planned experiment. 
And he kind of went big. He went for his first right. planned experiment. He went for 250 micrograms. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's uh, one of the, the the fascinating things about it too is that it's like they they weren't particularly aware of the the dosage at the time, right? It's like they were. How they could were they thinking, know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking that not knowing that it was active in the microgram, thinking that it was like any other you know medication they were used to uh, synthesizing or experimenting with that was active in in the milligram, which is actually. On the on the topic of the the dose, because I mean the, the doses that he took obviously in the in the beginning are are much higher than what we're used to talking about. But uh, I thought it was pretty funny too. In the High Times article, it talks about um, there's this kind of like historical I don't know it's not not a rivalry, but this uh, tension between Hoffman and Timothy Leary uh, as being at opposite ends of the spectrum. And obviously because uh, Hoffman was in charge of uh, Sandoz Laboratories and he was the one who had to uh, officially sanction any purchase of the, the substance from the laboratory. And I guess Leary, Leary applied for, uh, while he was at Harvard, applied for, uh, to, to buy a quantity of it. And he actually he, he ordered 100 grams of it. That was and, uh, so that's that, pretty amazing. Like, if you think that a, caught a, a my gram eye. has a, a million, a million... <laughs> You know, a million micrograms <laughs> in a gram, and he orders a hundred of them. <laughs> and to put that in context, so even just his original 250 microgram, I looked on Arrowid for just some general facts and figures on oral dosages of LSD, and they have a little table here that a common dose is 50 to 150. And they're saying for blotter, for example, a single tab usually contains between 30 and 100. And then on a gelatin, which are apparently more, uh, you know, generally stronger, it could be anywhere between 50 and 150. So for argument's sake, say roughly 50 micrograms might be like a single dose. And, you know, if you want to take two or three. So basically his first time he he took five. (laughs) (laughs) He took five doses. And then to also put the the order that Leary made in in context. So 100 grams, that's two million doses. (laughs) That's in addition to that, did you see he ordered 25 kilograms of psilocybin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you know, and, and just to, uh, it's funny because I think when you grew up, at least in this country, I grew up uh, when I first got interested in these things, it was like Timothy Leary was kind of like the first guy you get interested in. You're like, this guy's interesting. And, you know, and then his the psychedelic experience and this whole connection to like Tibetan Buddhism. And it's just like, he sounds like an interesting guy. And then, uh, you know, you read Hoffman's book, and Hoffman like just thought he was a complete amateur uh, and a person who was probably single-handedly responsible for ruining, uh, just ruining any any possibility for it becoming like an acceptable uh, thing to do. And uh, so, and then when he, you know, apart from the other barbs that he he throws at Leary in the in the uh, in the part of the interview where he's talking about uh, Leary's order. Of the drugs, he says, I just pulled it up here. He says, uh, he says, before the sales department of Sandoz could carry out the demand for this extraordinarily large quantity of psychedelic compounds, we asked Dr. Leary to provide us with the necessary import license from the U.S. health authorities. He failed to provide it. <laughs> the unrealistic manner in which he handled this transaction left the impression of a person unconcerned with the regulations of society. <laughs> like, is, Again, that like, is that the nicest way to say, like, this guy's a fucking amateur? <laughs> Yeah, right. effectively getting his his point across, but you know, in, sure, sure. in, in such an eloquent way. <laughs> yeah, of, of Hoffman. Yeah, I enjoyed that part too. 
he makes reference to a couple of. Uh, I, I think it was actually pretty pretty surprising. It's like Hoffman. Uh, then he he mentions um, Leary in a positive light when he talks about um, an accurate description of the experience, and he talks about how Leary mm-hmm. actually describes yeah. the experience pretty well. So I thought it was like. Yeah, yeah. Often he just comes off as like a really, uh, a really enlightened person. You know, it's like he doesn't, as much as you can imagine, he like can't stand Leary. On one hand, he he still throws him the compliment. On the other hand, at being you know accurate in his descriptions, he's an adult. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, qu- question for you, Kev, because you've you've read um, his book, which came out in, I think seventy nine or eighty, so a little bit after this article that or this interview rather with Horowitz that we're referring to. But I found a discrepancy between in the in the interview, he's asked, um, you know, how long and how often did you continue to take LSD? And Hoffman's answer, maybe this was at the time, said my ten to fifteen experiments with LSD were distributed over twenty seven years. Mm-hmm. So he says 10 to 15 experiments. And then I read an article, a 2008 New York Times article, right after he had passed away, mm-hmm. which makes a reference to him, him having taken LSD hundreds of times. And I, that, that, uh, I, I can't remember from the book itself, but that would really surprise me because it seems like um, that's not – I mean, in the article, in the in the interview, he even mentions that you know whatever he was going to get from LSD, he had he had got it already, right? Exactly. And so he didn't feel the need to like continue to repeat it, <laughs> which I can't understand at all. But um, but yeah, I don't. I, it, it would surprise me if he had done it hundreds of times. I think he he had specific objectives for each time he did it, and then he also he moved. You know, before, when he became well versed in LSD is when he moved on to other substances because he was curious about the whole you know the relationship between LSD and psilocybin and mescaline mm. and yeah yeah he went down to Mexico yeah uh, for that research yeah i thought it was interesting that he not only created LSD but through studying uh the mushrooms that he was sent from Mexico he was able to successfully synthesize psilocybin in a lab so he just Absolutely. cracked the code cracked the code yeah, absolutely. Actually, I read a story somewhere recently. I can't. I can't remember where it was, but it was about his. Uh, there's this famous. I want to say this famous Mexican in, in indigenous like mystic. Her name escapes me right now. She's one of these really famous uh, women in the um, Maria Sabina or something. Yeah, like that. Maria. I think it's yeah. Maria Sabina. Yeah. And he talks about how he brought her. He had met her on a previous trip, and he brought her the psilocybin pills that he had uh, synthesized. And then it was like for him it was like a big step when uh, they they took them together, and she gave him like the kind of the the nod that it was like the same thing, you know. And it oh was yeah, like, they they make reference to that in this interview with Horowitz. Um, oh, do they? Yeah, he says um, after taking a rather strong dose in the course of a of a session, she said there is no difference between the pills and the mushrooms. She said, "End quote." The spirit of the mushroom is in the pill. Yeah. Said final proof that our synthetic preparation was identical in every respect with the natural product. Because the thing was, mushrooms were uh, seasonal, right? So yeah. it was only after the rainy season that the mushrooms were growing. So the practice in Mexico is limited to a certain part, time of the year. And I guess when they had made this trip, it was after the season, so they didn't necessarily have any. And she seemed really excited that she could continue to to do her her what did she say? Perform magic all year round. <laughs> I was just like when you, when you were talking about the seasons I was imagining like 
you know, in every culture, there's this like uh, some sort of festival related to the harvest. And I was like, that's a pretty cool like psychedelic Thanksgiving, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the crops are ready. You know? yeah, in, yeah, in Peru, it's like they have a huge celebration over the potato harvest because that's really big in Peru. It's like boring. Let's go to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I thought it's also. Uh, it's really cool uh, when this famous trip that Hoffman took, his first trip to Mexico with Gordon Wasson and the searching for uh, for mushrooms. It kind of it touches on like certain things we talk about uh, all the time, and it's like one is he went there with a tremendous respect for for the indigenous culture, and he also he found very quickly that the Indians didn't want to talk to him about. Uh, mushrooms, yeah. like they, yeah. were, they were really scared to talk to him about mushrooms because they had just learned over thousands of years just not to talk to like the white Christian men about, or the white Judeo Christian men about uh, about mushrooms because it always led to trouble. They didn't understand it, right? And it was something they chastised, and so that was uh, that's one part. And then he also, I just actually just found it in the article. He says um, the Indians' religious awe of the psychedelic drug may be replaced in our society by respect and reverence based on scientifically established knowledge of its unique effects. So I think it's um, something we drew on in the last podcast, but basically um, having, having that, like, that criteria yeah. for, for doing something that's kind of in our society. It's like we have a, this responsibility, but we kind of have to invent the criteria ourselves, and it really depends on having like a good group around you to establish that criteria, whereas in like the indigenous society, you had this, um, this just this vast like historical protocol for for doing something like that that guaranteed a certain type of experience yeah and to come up with it on our own he also says how um you know the the relationship with you know buddhism was saying that the general ideas and instructions on how to run a session um given given their outcome of long experiences seem very valuable but he was saying what disturbs him about it is the use of uh foreign tibetan symbolism and he was saying i prefer that we remain within our own cultural framework that we use symbols found in the writings of western mystics and he lists a few that i can't possibly pronounce correctly (laughs) 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 but yeah i mean it's to the same point that you know it's like we've got our own history we've got our own way of doing this and we and this is unprecedented so we don't need to kind of crib the experience of an Eastern mystic, we can make this, and we should make this our own. We should give it reverence, yes, give it the environment to to do it, but, uh, you know, he's always, he's always looking out for us. Can we just start calling him dad? Can we just refer to him? <laughs> he, does, he does give that impression the whole time. It's like he, he stands out um, in, in amongst this whole group because he's like the straightest arrow of them all. Yep. And yeah, he's just... Time. It just reminds you of just, just like awesome, yeah, like awesome dad, chemistry professor, distinguished, uh, distinguished scientist, and just straight laced as you know as as possible. Yeah, kind of dad, and also somewhat, you know, he's a scientist, so sometimes his words sound a bit robotic. There's a uh, some excerpts from the book itself, and some lines that I particularly liked, where he's these are his journal notes from from Bicycle Day, so from April 19th, 1943, and it was about 4, <laughs> 420, um, coincidentally, that he takes it. Um, it's about 5 o'clock, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. <laughs> and then 
supplement once he gets home, home by bicycle, from six to eight, most severe crisis. (laughs) (laughs) He says, here, uh, the notes in my laboratory journal cease. I was able to write the last words only with great effort. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. The mother of all trip reports. Yeah. (laughs) Most severe crisis. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good word for it. I've seen, you know, that period described in in certain ways like that. The one, the one that always gets me is from a a Spanish rock band that I really like, and they call it. Uh, they're referring to like a group trip they do, and they there's just a part a part where they say panic in the bungalow. <laughs> I just like get such a big kick out of that sentence because everyone knows exactly what that's all about. <laughs> just that one second of crisis, just panic and crisis. I just came across uh, in the interview, he talks, uh, there's this one quote that's highlighted uh, where he's like, you get the, the straight-laced uh, feel from Hoffman all the time, but then he's, go, he, he's got that kind of like Western responsible mystic aspect of himself and he says, at age 19 I made the decision to become a chemist for both mystical philosophical, philosophical reasons and for reasons of curiosity. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so it's like, and I, that's one of the things I remember uh, vividly from his book is that he he starts the book about talking about how he became a chemist, and he just talks about how he grew up in Switzerland in this like just you know the most spectacular. <laughs> Brad, you you remember you remember Switzerland well, right? Oh yeah, it's like yeah. spectacular. Vividly, uh, vividly, vividly, very vividly. Uh, just spectacular nature, like it just everywhere you turn, it's just beautiful lakes and forests and pristine uh, environment and he he spent a lot of time in those contexts his father uh, his parents took him out all the time for hikes and just like the average the average Swiss person spent a lot of time in uh, in nature and he just became really interested in biology in general in plants and animals and it was as he was going through uh, university that he just uh, developed this like fascination with plants and about how to use plants uh, he, he saw them as like this tremendous wealth of possibilities in terms of developing <clears throat> different uh, different different drugs from the different pharmaceuticals that could be uh, really helpful to people and he, that's kind of what he was doing when he ran into uh, LSD yeah and speaking of the mystical connection you know he it uh, Alex Gray tells the story oftentimes about how uh, Hoffman uh, had a dream uh, and that's what led him to resynthesize LSD. Uh, he was visited in his sleep by what he called an angel. And in his dream, um, the angel, I think, was crying over uh, the crisis going on in the world. I guess this was uh, during World War II and uh, the development of the atomic bomb was happening. And mm-hmm. he, in the dream, he collected the tears of the angel in a vial and he, this, when he awoke, he, he had this feeling to re-examine LSD, and that's what led him to resynthesize it. So there's this definitive mystical connection to just throughout his life for somebody who's so straight, straight-laced and straight-edged, uh, you know, to have this, to, to respect this sort of mystical, you know, the mystery of things is, is uh, I don't know, is inspiring to me. The image of a vial of angel tears. It's like <laughs> how how much? Yeah, how much for that? <laughs> <laughs> He's kind. Of, I find that really appealing about him because I think even from the early years of like my own experimentation, and everything I was turned off by the as I was with yoga and everything else. I'm, just, I'm a little turned off by like the the radicals and the kind of crazy more hippy dippy. 
um, version of everything. And so for me, like in the same as I found when I found my yoga teacher or when I found like Holodowski or I found uh, Hoffman, it's like it's nice to have somebody I can, uh, you know, you, I can respect them for all the, those other reasons and then see that like they can responsibly do this in like a really mature way, you know, and not that I can't also enjoy all the other people, but it's like having having like this one point of reference that is a little bit more. I don't know. Legitimate in my eyes is a, is a nice. Uh, I don't know. It's just a nice framework. You you found your uh, brand of mumbo jumbo. I think exactly exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's totally well said. I'm, I'm always writing uh, Joe's. I was going to say Joe's girlfriend. I guess I have to say Joe's wife now. Uh, but uh, about about having the like hippy dippy uh, versions of everything, and you know, it's about about how it's all just mumbo jumbo. So. But I think in the end, it's probably like Joe said. We all just have to find our 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 own version of the mumbo jumbo, the one the one that we like the best. And so uh, Hoffman does it does it for me. Yeah, there's a question Horowitz poses Hoffman directly. He says, "Is LSD an evolutionary agent?" And I think this kind of I can't, my mind came to this, Joe, when you were talking about the time that he had the dream, where it's in the midst of power and and international politics based on power trips. And so his first answer to the question is LSD an evolutionary agent? Possibly. Which I like so often. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he's just commenting on the Western world and what's happening and, you know, he says agreement exists among spiritual leaders that the continuation of the present development characterized by increased industrialization and overpopulation will result in the exhaustion of national resources and destroy the ecological basis for mankind's existence on the planet. And he says, this change, uh, or he refers to needing to change this, and this change can result only from insight into the deepest spiritual roots of life and existence from comprehensive use of all forces of our intelligence and all resources of our knowledge. This intellectual approach, supplemented by visionary experience, could produce an alteration of this consciousness of truth and reality that could be of evolutionary significance. LSD, selectively and wisely used, could be one means of supplementing intellectual with visionary insight and helping the prepared mind become conscious of a deeper reality. <laughs> wow, he's, he's, he's so measured and reasonable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, that's, saying, that's a brilliant. That's an absolutely brilliant quote. Yeah, it's like can it can it help us evolve as humans? Like yeah, you know, it's like it, it can. And and I, you know, his the chip on his shoulder. You know, he has about Leary is he kind of I think he kind of feels like Leary fucked it up in a big way. Like he he just started talking about this as this is an amazing thing, and then counterculture movement got a hold of it, and it was is widely abused and. You know, it strained his relationships. You know, it's it made it difficult for him to uh, be proud of what I think he was always proud of what he had created, but he he was frustrated that there was all it got kind of got a little out of control. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think he had like a pretty I, it, it, that that part comes off. Uh, it comes off that way in the book when he talks about uh, Leary after Leary had been exiled. Well, exile. He had escaped from the United States. Basically. Yeah, he escaped from prison. That's <laughs> that's nuts. And uh, yeah, he escaped, and he, he was in Switzerland, and he set up this meeting with Hoffman, and I think he expected a warm reception from Hoffman uh, because, as Hoffman calls it, it was like the the father and the prophet meeting. 
<laughs> you know, and he said the father of LSD and the prophet were going to meet, and, uh, and then Hoffman just lambasted him for for a couple hours about how he had like just taken a beautiful thing and desecrated it, <laughs> and so which I think it was it must be pretty cool. Like to, like yeah, Timothy Leary for like for all the the shit he was taking at the moment, he must have been like, this is pretty cool. Like a Albert Hoffman is like beating me up right now. <laughs> and so. Uh, but yeah, he he did. He seemed uh, in the in the book when he talks about uh, every how the '60s start to unfold, uh, the mid '60s. Uh, he's horrified. He's absolutely horrified. It's like he he knew from the beginning that this, as he said in your in the quote you mentioned, it's like this is for a prepared mind. And he insists a lot on the on the on the setting and the the people you're with and. And he just saw the opposite being done. It was just handed out like candy, and everybody was just, you know, taking LSD on a whim. And he was like, "This is the perfect way to turn this into a bad thing." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think on the topic of uh, did Hoffman, you know, believe it was a, it could be an evolutionary agent. He he sent a, a, a pretty famous letter to Steve Jobs at one point. Um, when he, it was like a year before he died. Um, he was, he was like 101 years old or something like that. And he, he actually wrote a letter to Steve Jobs saying, you know, you're, you're in a position where, where you could maybe have some influence here, you know, either supporting this research or, um, you know, just taking a stand because he, I guess he read, uh, that, you know, Steve Jobs famously, uh, you know, took LSD and credited it with some of his, you know, success in life. And, uh, so Hoffman, you know, was, was always supportive of the cause to, you know, to, to make this substance, uh, accessible and legal and, you know, research it. Yeah. I saw that referenced as well. And I also noticed that, uh, there's no known response from jobs on right. that, on that play. <laughs> Sadly. But, you know, sat, yeah. I mean, publicly at least, you know, right. maybe something was done behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> I think this is maybe the last question from that interview. I also just loved, loved Hoffman's eloquence in his answer to the question, has LSD affected your philosophical outlook? And he says, from my LSD experiments, including the very first terrifying one, I have received knowledge of not only one, but of an infinite number of realities. Depending upon the condition of our senses and psychic receptors, we experience a different reality. I realize the depth and the richness of the inner and outer universe are immeasurable and inexhaustible. And then skipping down a couple sentences, he says, in some of my psychedelic experiences, I had a feeling of ecstatic love and unity with all creatures in the universe. To have had such an experience of absolute beautitude means an enrichment of our life. Beautitude? Beautitude. I knew you'd like that one. That's a good one. I'm going to add that to the list. Yep. And speaking of words, as you know, here on Entheogen, we love words. Did you guys catch Fantastica? Oh, no. There is, there's a question. I, apparently, the term psychedelic was coined by Dr. Humphrey Osmond. Mm-hmm. And Horowitz asked him if, if, if that term um, is agreeable to you. And Hoffman says, I think it is a good term. It corresponds better. <laughs> I, can't, I can't not like affect his voice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's, what, that's what I'm laughing about. <laughs> I, I think it is a good term. term. <laughs> <clears throat> it corresponds better to the effects of the drugs than hallucinogenic or psycho, Jesus, psychotopim, wow, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. Psycho- psychotopomimetic or what? Psychotopomimetic. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of T's, O's, and M's in there. Um, and then he says another suitable designation would have been Fantastica, coined by Louis Lewin in the 1920s, but it was not accepted in English-speaking countries. 
Oh, wow. And that's Fantastica PH, so not like uh, Fantasia. It's accepted by this English-speaking person. <laughs> Fanta- I thought you'd like that Fantastica. one. Fantastica. Psychedelicists that's for Fantasticas. Sorry. Support group. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I think we should take this opportunity to thank uh, thank the good doctor for all of his hard work and uh, his his you know treatment of this topic with with such um, I don't know such just such a capable such a capable person. We're we're very lucky that he he was the one who you know who accidentally uh, observed it, as you said, Brad. And I think uh, <laughs> he did it. He did a great job, you know, in his hundred and what is it, hundred and two years, something yeah, he like lived that. Yeah, hundred and two. Yeah incredible that was a that was a noble feat of his too i mean like he uh you know if he had died at like 50 something then it would have been like you know uh, a, a shot against him or something people would have uh de- definitely rumored that it was the lsd that got him but you know that's true i would like to you know oppositely think that my lsd use will allow me to live to 102 <laughs> <laughs> but uh that's definitely uh that's a, that's a long life and uh, and just really cool reflection every time uh, he spoke about it, even in, until later on. I was just, Brad, I just pulled up the um, Steve Jobs quote or the Steve Jobs letter you mentioned, and uh, it's funny because he talks about uh, he the book is called LSD, My Problem Child, and the last letter in uh, or the last line in his letter to Steve Jobs, he says, "Hopefully, with support from people like you, th- there will be a transformation, and this, you will transform my problem child into my wonder child." <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Not to take anything away from him, whether he did anything publicly or privately, I think the fact that, you know, in his autobiography, he 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 can be honest about that time of his life and he can be honest. Yeah, definitely. I thought that was really ballsy actually. I didn't expect like, that yeah. at all. Yeah, that's I you know, I, I don't think that can be overlooked for for supporting, you know, what he felt was helpful in his life and in this case, you know, LSD and um, I think that's pretty cool. Sure, yeah, I think I think that's a really important step in the normalization of uh, of something like LSD. It's like you need those people to come out and and, and like I said before, and like not in a hippy dippy way, but in like a very uh, mark you know market tone and like a very normal way. Just you know mention mention the experiences and that there's something uh, that have been useful to them. Yep. So right, so not to overstate our our role in this, but you know, first you got Hoffman, then you got Jobs, now us, right? Right? Where <laughs> absolutely fighting the good fight. Do you want to you want to leave it with a good quote, a good Hoffman quote? Oh, yeah. yeah. wait, real quick, real quick, before maybe we can include this or maybe not, but this is another one of my favorite points, uh, parts of that interview. Um, where he he's talking about his first trip to Mexico or one of his tr- first trips to Mexico, and him trying psilocybin mexicana, this strain of mushrooms, and he says he thirty two dried specimens. And Horowitz asks, "Isn't that a large dose?" And he says, "No, the mushrooms are very tiny, weighing in total only about two point four grams, a medium dose by Indian standards." And Horowitz <laughs> says, "What was it like?" To which Hoffman answered, "Everything assumed a Mexican character." Whether my eyes were closed or open, I saw only Mexican motifs and colors. When the doctor supervising the experiment bent over to check my blood pressure, he was transformed into an Aztec priest, and I would not have been astonished had he drawn an obsidian knife. <laughs> Dude, it reminds me so much of a... Uh, it's great. I, I, uh, a, a young, this, this Australian guy that I 
that I met and I eventually wound up uh, sharing an apartment with for quite a long time was one a really fascinating person and uh, really opened my mind to like certain certain things. He was just like this 20-year-old entrepreneur who had this crazy business in Australia and he was traveling the world and he was just a, he was a, like a boy genius. And uh, so I you know, naturally started talking to him about psychedelics pretty early on. And uh, I was with him for his first uh, acid trip. <laughs> I was, I was wearing this like shirt I had bought for Burning Man. It was like a, I don't know if you remember, but it's like a really loud yellow shirt with like patterns on it. That's it's like really I guess like indigenous or like African looking. And I was wearing like a hat with it, and like so he he was pretty overwhelmed by the experience at certain parts. So I just kind of took him to a room where he could sit and be alone. And I'd come check on him like every 15 minutes. And, and like the next day we're talking about it. And he's like, man, like every time you came back, you I just saw you as this like wise African witch doctor. And like he's like, I would immediately feel better because the wise African witch doctor was there to like just console me. You know? I was like, that's really funny. Like those things, like just how your mind jumps at like any cue and just, just runs with it. Yeah, the association, the contextualization of your experience. Sure. <laughs> there's a there's a quote here in uh I'm looking at uh it's like Hoffman quotes and there's one here. It's it's, it's very very dangerous to lose contact with living nature. Mm. Yeah, I I read a lot about that as well about how, you know, his research becoming a chemist from his experience as a as a kid, you know, doing his nature walks and being overwhelmed by the beauty of things. It was always about his relationship with nature. You know, he really seemed to pay heavy attention to that, that, you know, all of his research and his experience and his experience with LSD and, you know, it, and I think a lot of people think of LSD, differ, differentiate it from, I, I certainly did for a long time, differentiate it from like uh, mushrooms, for example, because it's a synthesized thing. But he, he makes the point to, to call it like a semi-organic compound. Because it from comes from ergot, you know, it's not totally uh, f uh, fabricated. It's not totally synthesized compared to most pharmaceuticals. Compared to ketamine, you know, as a psychotropic, mm -hmm. that's 100% pure synthetic. He he makes that distinction. That LSD isn't purely synthetic. It's it's semi-organic. It's pretty interesting too. In the I remember in the book he goes into. He talks about uh, ergot and and just about how um, this is something that had been going on for a really really long. T it's like as as long as humans have been uh, cultivating rye, well, there've been rye funguses, and uh, so that, like if you look uh, historically throughout the Middle Ages, you get these um, these outbreaks every once in a while of of rye fungus, but like obviously no one knows how to scientifically. Uh, take a look at that. So they just give it like a religious, right? You know, they give it or a mass give it a hysteria. Yeah, absolutely. So like the Middle Ages are full of like mass hysterias and like towns just freaking out. Isn't and, that a like, theory about the Salem witch trials that it was related to? Ergot it place? is. I don't know if that one's ever been like completely confirmed, but like medieval Europe is just full of them, and they call it like Saint Anthony's Fire. And there's just all of these just outbreaks all the time where, you know, and it's like when that happens, uh, you know, so usually someone is like crucified or like burned at the stake because they're a witch. You know, that's just bad luck. That's just terrible luck. <laughs> or or uh, in ancient Greece, right? The uh, Eleusinian mysteries. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. that yeah. was. But Plato kind of came out of a lot of his writings came out of that, right? 
Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that was the theory there too about the uh, about you know ergot fungus, rye fungus that uh, you know may have been used in those. Uh, don't I don't doubt it. Don't Boom. doubt it at all. I mean, like you. I mean, you might imagine an experience like that. Imagine like you know, imagine our like Friday night at Burning Man, but like no one knows they took anything. <laughs> so it's like everyone, everyone's going about their day, and then just all of a sudden, like the whole town is tripping. <laughs> Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the religious element, I think, is an interesting thing that Hoffman doesn't shy away from either. Um, in, to, in response to a question Horowitz asks, you know, for many people, LSD provides what they describe as a religious experience. And what are your feelings on this? And he says, for people whom LSD provides a religious experience, expect to have such an experience when they take it. You know, so they're setting themselves up for it, perhaps. He says, expectation, which is identical to auto-suggestion, determines to a high degree what will happen in the session because one of the most important features of the LSD state is its extreme suggestibility. And then he says, another reason for the incidence of religious experiences is the fact that the very core of the human mind is connected with God, the oh. deepest root of our consciousness, which in the normal state is hidden by superficial, rational activities of the mind, may become revealed by the action of the psychedelic drug. Wow. And it, well, you know, well said. Yeah. Thanks again, Hoff. Thanks again, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, just you know, he he just states it as he understands it. Like he's he's big into nature. He was, you know, I think Christian, right? I think he was he was ra raised religiously by his family, and and so his understanding of the world and his connection to nature. It's like he says it right there. The the, <laughs> the fact that the very core of the human mind is connected with God. You know, I don't know if it's a fact, but it's his understanding. It's just getting back to this, um, this concept. I think Hoffman talks about it that way. I've never seen a reference to him being of any particular religion and honestly being Swiss. And at the time he grew up, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if he weren't of a particular, uh, you know, uh, denomination of any religion, if he was just kind of, you know, generally had his own feelings about it, but I would I would guess that he was pretty um, open or agnostic about it. Um, but uh, he does mention that it's like one of the first things uh, it was something he felt as a kid, and that he felt very strongly on LSD was like the inter the interconnectivity of everything, and uh, and it's it's definitely where Leary goes in uh, with his Tibetan ideas, and it's just that everything is made of the same essence, and 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 so on. So I think it's. Uh, that's yeah. It's kind of where he's where he's going with that. It's just like that's that in and of itself is what he would call God. Right. Any other notes on Dad? Dad. Dad Hoffman. <laughs> the Hasselhoff. That's 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 how what I've coined taking acid on the beach. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Entheogen. We've been discussing Dr. Albert Hoffman. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm David Hasselhoff. <laughs>